Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast. Over and out. Cool, cool. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, would you wh- would you mind if I ask where are you uh, calling us from? Uh, so right now I'm in Seattle, Washington. Okay, is that where you live? Uh, I just moved here a couple months ago. Oh, did you? Yep. And what brought you there? Um, work actually. Work I found through Twitter. Oh really? No, no way. What? What? Do you mind if I inquire more about that, or is it private? Um, I, I can't say too much about it yet. But basically, we're doing kind of like a stealth startup, and we'll be launching something in the next couple months. And I'll tell you more about that later. Okay, cool. I was going to ask you, like, are you? I wasn't sure what you did for a living. I kind of got the impression that you're kind of an entrepreneur or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, is that fair to say? Do you just do like different startups and bounce around? Um, kind of. So basically, what what happened was like, I I basically dropped out of university. I said, this is all bullshit. Let me just go read some books, hide away in the middle of nowhere, just read a lot of books. And then I started to read about all these different topics. And then people in the area said, they were interested in you helping us with our startup. And so I just kind of like consulted for different startups and, and then I started to just like ship post on Twitter and then somebody in Seattle found me and says, Hey, we want you to come over here and help us with this. So I came over here. Could you just turn up your microphone? Some people are saying they can't hear you. Um, wait, how, how do I turn it up? I don't even know how, like, I'm um, default. there should be a setting on the Google Hangout screen. Um, if you go into settings. settings hold up i don't even see an option or maybe you can do your microphone on your computer turn just turn up the sensitivity let's see oh jacob says i might have to do it let me see no i think that's that's on you if you Hover over the screen. Um, you there should be an option, like a gear icon. Yeah. And does that let you make your um, microphone more sensitive or anything? Oh, let me see. Um, on my computer, says it's a full volume. Okay, so, one sec. Let me see. Let me see what I can do. Um, Oh, yeah, Jacob is right. I can do it from here. All right, one sec, sorry.
Okay, that should be louder for everyone. Is it louder? Yeah, hang on. All right, everyone should be able to hear Mimetic louder now. Um, if people want me to turn his mic up a little bit more, I can do that. Just type in the chat, but it should be a little bit louder now. So um, for anyone who maybe wasn't hearing because the volume was down, uh, by the way, what should I call you? Uh, people just call me Q, letter Q, because they can't really pronounce my full name. Okay, Q, that's cool. I like that. It's mysterious. Uh, what Q is just saying for anyone who couldn't hear him because his mic was down or the whatever the hangout was down. Uh, yeah. You, so you're basically saying that you, um, you basically started shit posting on Twitter and it got you a job in Seattle. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's interesting. Do you think that's like a, uh, a repeatable method that people can use? Like, do you think in general, like if you're very intelligent and you have good insights, if you start shit posting aggressively on Twitter, will it eventually get you hired? Or is that not a reliable thing to do? Um, I don't know if it's, reliable but i do think it's repeatable because i know somebody else who's also done that really yeah interesting interesting okay cool so uh maybe we could just jump right into what is what what is your idea about mimetic value uh you have the as far as i can tell you have a kind of overarching philosophy that you're developing or working on uh related to how we can take ideas about mimesis if i understand correctly and basically leverage them for kind of intelligent social action uh could you tell us more about it uh yeah yeah so let's see so i haven't actually been focusing on this topic in the past couple weeks but but basically what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to look at just all these different disciplines and try to see how do i practically apply them in business and also in my own life and basically like i I guess what i started with is uh warren buffett and charlie munger and there's also this uh farnham street blog that guy he always talks about these lattices of mental models so i basically just read up on topics I, I'm interested in. I try to connect them. And and basically, uh, another one of my influences was Tim Ferriss. And I looked at uh, one of his books. It's called Tools of Titans. And at the back of the book, basically, he listed out all the top recommended books of the guests he had. And I just... Look through that list and try to find what are the most interesting books that appeal to me the most on there. And I read them. So that's kind of what I did during my, I guess, around two years, just just kind of hiding out in Omaha, doing mo- mostly just reading. So I started to read all these different books that are recommended there, as well as like just talking to other intelligent friends and just figuring out what's the best things to read. Okay. So what are you, what are your favorites then other than what you kind of cited? Oh, uh, man, there's there's so many different favorites. It, and like if you ask me at different points in time, I'll probably say something completely different. Right. Right. So a question that came up already in the chat before you came in was um you write your name uh, Mimetic, M I M. So 
we're not talking about when, when people hear the word or when people hear the term mimetic, it's sort of unclear if it's mimetic in the sense of memes or mimetic in the sense of mimesis. Uh, and yours is, is conscious in that regard, right? So you're, you're talking about mimesis, not uh, memes. Is that right? Yes. Right. Yeah. They're definitely related. Right. Definitely, uh, I would say I'm more focused on the mimesis. Right. So someone is asking in the chat about uh, Peter Thiel. And I, I, I think that is one of your kind of explicit references, right? Q? Yeah. Yeah. So, so at the back of Tulsa Titans, it, it listed all the uh, interviewees' uh, favorite books. And the only book that Peter Thiel recommended was uh, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. And, and while everyone else, especially like Naval, listed probably like 20 books and everyone else listed at least five, but he just listed the one. And it's this book that wasn't a lot of the other books, like everyone recommend the same books over and over again, but he listed one book that nobody else ever recommended. It's, it's just him. And I was right. his only choice. So, so I wrote a thread about that in uh, probably last June. And, and I've just basically said some random things on the top of my head about it. And that thread blew up. And I gained like 3,000 followers overnight. From saying, from w- talking about uh, what in particular? Uh, I, so I deleted my tweets a couple of times, but, so it's not publicly available anymore. But basically I had a thread of like around, I think 15 tweets kind of talked about like, why did Peter Thiel choose to recommend this one book? And I basically, I didn't even really talk much about mimetic theory in, in that thread, but basically like, when you choose a book that nobody else recommends, there's something special in that because then it catches the attention of the right people. So you're kind of filtering out the information. You're, you're filtering out the wrong people because most people, they just say, oh, this book is popular. This is at the top of the New York Times best read, bestseller list. I mean, get it. But he recommends something that nobody else recommends. So that kind of shows you that He's trying to think about things in a way that's different from other people. And not only that, like the book is not written in a good style. It's not even written in a style that's very decipherable. It's just like these guys having this random conversation going all over the place. And it's just a transcript of it. And, and, and like also they bring up a whole bunch of references of people that you, you usually would never hear about. And so you have to kind of do your own research to get through the book. And this is the book about this is book by Rene Girard that you're talking about. Is that right? Yeah. And actually, I would not recommend you start with that one if you want to get into Girard. Well, maybe you could save people the time and you could help them understand why why that book is so important. Um, I I don't know if it's that book in itself is so important, but it's more more of like it's very interesting to choose a book to recommend. Where first, it's only one book, so that way people's attention is focused on only that one thing. They're not distracted by too many things. And then also it's something that requires a lot of prerequisite knowledge to understand. So that way it kind of, you're basically referencing, you're basically recommending multiple books, but you only have to say the title of one word, one, one book. And also like the title of the book was very intriguing, you know, like things hidden since the foundation of the world. So it's so kind of like, draws you in. And I basically, in that thread, I talked about um, Robert Cialdini's 
influence some persuasion books and how how like how like this is like a very master persuader type of thing to do to but like you're not trying to be a master persuader to the masses you're trying to target specific people who are uh kind of more unusual thinkers right okay and you think you think that book is an example of that um the way he recommended it i would say that's a good example oh the way teal recommends it yeah yeah well peter teal definitely is working some kind of some kind of deeper strategy right he's playing some kind of four-dimensional uh, chess game with the culture is that how you see it yeah yeah could you could, maybe could you tell us your read on him mm-hmm. I, I don't know it's tough to say because he uh he keeps things very privately he see it, it's very interesting how like he he invested in i think facebook and maybe also twitter early on and so he's very interested in these social networks he invests in them and he says he invests them because he understands the mimetic behavior of people. But at the same time, he doesn't participate in them. He never tweets anything, he never posts anything on Facebook. He's just off the grid. So it's uh, quite an interesting behavior because usually like the other investors like Mark Andreessen or, or like the founder of Facebook and uh, Twitter, they all, they all post on their own platform. Right. But, Right. He says, okay, I'm, I know it's going to be good. I'm going to invest in it, but I'm not going to post anything. So you wrote this Twitter thread about Peter Thiel's recommendation of that book. And that Twitter thread went viral, you said. And you you got 3,000 followers just from that, did you say? Yeah. And probably was one of those people the, the person who gave you a job in Seattle? Uh, yeah. That's fascinating. So who... Who who exactly did your tweeting um, find itself spread among? Exactly, is it like tech people um, in like the U.S. Think, West Coast think, or what? Yeah, I think a lot of tech people, but not not only tech people. And like, I I don't even know why, but like Jocko also followed me. So so Jocko Willem. The uh, guy who wrote Extreme Ownership, the Navy SEAL. Right. Sorry, people are complaining about the volume, so I'm just going to fix it a little bit more. Um, All right. Sorry. All right. Um, someone wants to know, do you have a girlfriend? Oh, <laughs> uh, not, not at the moment. Well, you love, you love to work out. We've noticed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very important part of like, just like to be a complete human being. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it definitely helps you think better. Mm-hmm. Like you think better when you're really physically fit and strong. I think that's a true fact of like the bro intellectual milieus. Mm-hmm. Um, are you like friends with other, it, I get the vibe that there's kind of like a Twitter crew of mm-hmm. like men who weightlift and like theorize, especially around like business strategy. Is that a thing? Um, man, I feel like, I mean, many circles that are not supposed to be connected, but I, I'm just in them. 
Right. It's interesting. I, I'm just, I don't know. I just, this is what I, this is like my, the impressions that I get. And I'm kind of trying to like map the, the, the subcultures of Twitter. Mm-hmm. And it seems right. like you're kind of in that, in that subculture. Yeah, a little bit. But like I also have yeah. uh, some other circles. Okay. Well, how, what would you describe your other circles as? Um, let's see. Wait. So, so actually, your volume is now low for me. I don't know why. Oh, can you turn your can you turn your sound up or no? Um, I, I think I'm at the highest. Yeah. Is it any better if I bring the mic closer? It's about the same. Is it so? It's hard for you to hear. Uh, it, it's not too bad, but it's like it just suddenly got like a lot uh, quieter for some reason. Yeah, it's because I, I did turn my volume down because people are complaining. People are saying that I'm too loud and you're too soft. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it just must be some unfortunate anomaly with our different microphones or whatever. Yeah, I'm just using the default on my laptop. Yeah, so. no worries. It's, it's no big deal. It's, it just happens mm-hmm. every now and then, weird snags. Um, okay. But if you can hear me, like, if it's, if it's good enough, I think we'll just roll with it if that's yeah. okay. Okay, okay. I, think it's, I think it's good now. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, yeah, someone in the chat was saying that um, there's like a certain kind of a crew or milieu on Twitter mm-hmm. of like hashtag insight bros. <laughs> uh, kind of, but like I would say like probably like the different circles I've been involved in kind of changed over time. But also I'm just kind of kind of cycling through different people. And this is something that is never has never been possible before. So I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Do you follow this guy Paul Scalis? I think like he's completely wrong about how Twitter is like the is like Lindy and how it's like the bar. No, it's fucking bullshit. Because at the bar you only have one conversation going on at once, but on Twitter you can have like twenty going on at once. This is something that had never happened before. Yeah, it's true. You can have as many different pockets as you want, and you can cycle between them. Well, to yeah. some degree though, because things you say for one group can kind of get punished by the other groups a little bit, yeah. but. But not really. No, you're right. I mean, you can definitely you can definitely cycle. So, what were your early tell tell us about your evolution then? Like, what was your earlier like internet circles, and how did they change? What internet or Twitter? Well, you were saying uh, whatever, however you wanted to find it. You were saying you've kind of sh- shifted or moved through different yeah. uh, Twitter worlds. Yeah. Um. So so early on the internet, I guess I uh, probably started uh. Mostly like uh, some some Rubik's cube solving groups, like on the internet. Nice. But then uh, afterwards, I got into like the kind of like the bodybuilding trolling circles. So we would make all these fake accounts on on Facebook, like Glenn Buderall or like Trent Malone or some past <laughs> Pasteron or like Diana Ball. You know, like these kind of pun names, and we just like create all these fake profiles and put like random like Instagram models as our profile pics or like random fat people we like to make fun of. <laughs> and okay. we just like have a whole bunch of alt accounts and just like troll random people. So that's, so that was probably like maybe like eight years ago. And that was just, have, that, those are people who wait lift, but that was just trolling. Yeah. And then you, yeah. So and that then was like eight years ago. Yeah. Eight years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you grew up, you read some, you know, Peter Thiel and Rene Girard. And then you started uh, upgrading your game to, you went from weightlifting and trolling to weightlifting and philosophy. Is that fair to say? Uh, 
kind of well actually dropped the lifting after a while like like i was probably at my strongest in 2014. okay yeah then i basically hit my goals in lifting and i kind of stopped and i just said okay what i want to do with my life like i i don't want to continue with this university environment and i just want to have some time out and the, all these books i i have like a huge reading list i just never get around to so i just decided to just chill just do some readings for a couple of years right on and and during that time were you like running a business or working for wages or what just uh no so basically i said fuck school i'm just i'm, I'm just out of here and i had no plans i just like <laughs> how did you make money to- I moved to a cheap place and I was living off of like, you know, rent was like 300 bucks a month in Omaha. And then like, if you just buy like ground beef, avocados and whatever, you can actually <laughs> live off of like $6 per day for food. And you'll get like a pretty good, like ketogenic diet is pretty yeah. high protein and high fat. Right. Yeah, if you just go for yourself. No, you're right. If you, if you just, uh, minimize your expenses, you can actually live quite cheap. In fact, I mean, right. I'm probably going to be doing that soon. Like probably starting in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be, uh, I'm probably going to have no job and I'm going to have to just, uh, like live without money for a while. Um, I don't know exactly how it's going to work. It's a little bit harder for me cause I have a wife and she's cool. Like she's down, she's down. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to, we're going to have to be, probably like eat like a lot of ground beef and live in <laughs> I live in Omaha too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Okay. So um, yeah, the point is you can, you can get away with not working for a while and you were just reading and eating mad ground beef, uh, lifting weights. No, I wasn't even lifting because I couldn't afford the gym. So, so I just, uh, all I did was just, uh, I did the readings and then I said that basically what did I do? And then afterwards I was like looking online. It's like, what should I do? Maybe I should get a job. And my parents are complaining. You should get a job, man. And I said, <laughs> I don't want to get a fucking bullshit job. Like if I, cause I don't want to waste my mental energy on anything. Hell and, yeah. and I realized it's like, yeah, I can get a job. Like I can get a software job if I want to, but then I'll be like, man, I'm stuck in this, uh, this nerd identity. And also my mind is being controlled by somebody else. So I said, no, fuck this. I don't want to do that. So, so what I did was, uh, I was, I think it was like James Altucher was interviewing, uh, Nassim Taleb. And what, what he said was basically going to, if you're, if you get like a job as a night security watchman, then you can do anything you want. You just like get paid, sit there. So I'm like, okay, that's great. I'm just gonna sit there and, or walk around and listen to some podcasts, listen to some audiobooks, get a Kindle, read some books. And that's what I did for a couple of months. Oh, did you do that? So you were a security watch person and you just listened to mad podcasts and read books. Oh yeah, I, I was like, okay, it's it's 10 p.m. I'm gonna be out all night. Let me download like a thousand podcasts, a thousand, and, and then just uh, get a whole bunch of yeah, probably like over a thousand books on my Kindle. And I just uh, did a lot of readings. And whenever I need to go out to do a patrol, I just put on a podcast, listen at double speed, and just like walk around. Nobody else was out there, just like chilling in the park, listening to podcasts all night. Right. Awesome. That sounds great. And so when, when in that, did you start writing and developing your own Uh, ideas? So, so during that time, so that was like, I did that for maybe like five or six months. And then during that time, 
during that time, I was also going to like these uh, entrepreneurship meetups in the city. And they were like, holy shit, why, why are you talking about all these different ideas that nobody else is talking about? And we want you to help out with uh, this startup. I, my business is failing. What do I do? So I said, so basically they just like these people wanted to bring me on to all these different projects. And I just kind of talked with them to try to sort out their problems. And essentially what I had was the four hour work week. I just said, okay, I'm going to work f- for you. Like on my own schedule, I'm not gonna, I might be here one day for like five hours, 10 hours, just hanging out the next day or the next whole week, I might just like not be here at all. And they say, okay, sure. That's cool. <laughs> so I did that and they basically just pay me decent amount per week and I don't even have to do anything. And what kind of work was that? What's that? What kind of work was that? It's consulting for, for like small businesses and startups. I basically just negotiated for complete freedom. They're not paying me much, but I I can do anything I want on my own time. And if I come up with some cool idea, I'll tell them about it. That's basically the contract. And you, you found those gigs by going to entrepreneurship meetups. Yeah. Yeah. Like I I wasn't even looking for a gig. I was just like talking to people trying to, you know, have a good time. And then people said they have all these problems and they think I have good ideas. So they just want me to, to, I guess, join them and help them. And did they know about your ideas from like the internet or just because you were talking about them in the meetings? No, I I had nothing on the internet at that time. I was just talking. (laughs) Nice. Okay, cool. So you're going to these entrepreneurship meetings, just sharing cool ideas that, that people have never heard about before. And you're like, mm-hmm. well, and people are like, wow, that's crazy. That's interesting. You can help me with this. You get mm-hmm. worked that way. And um, okay, so what comes next? You're reading more. And then I guess, do you get more into kind of the ideas angle? And, and then you start writing? Or how, when do you when do you start kind of writing more seriously? Um, let's see. I think I started to write some stuff um, in 2017, and that's kind of when I registered the website. But it wasn't really all that publicized. I didn't really bother publicizing any of it. It's just I write something that I think sounds cool, and then I send it to a couple of friends to look at, and they're like, okay, this sounds pretty cool. You should write a book. And I just write, like, random I kept on going until I decided to make that one PowerPoint thing. And then someone I was working with, he thought it was really good and just started to show more people in the startup community there, my PowerPoint. Right. And then, and then, uh, actually like one of the people I've been talking to a lot is, uh, I was talking to a lot at that time was, I was talking to, um, Martyr made online. He was uh, another podcaster. And, oh yeah, someone mentioned him in the chat. Yeah, so what's his, yeah. what, what's the story there? Uh, so, so I was listening to Jocko podcast. It was one of the early ones, maybe like around episode thirty. And Jocko recommended Martyr Made. He's like, "This you should check out this guy, Martyr Made. His podcast is like as good as Dan Carlin's Hardcore History." So I checked it out, and and I listened to his whole podcast, and I thought, "Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting stuff." And and then. Then I basically, I think I was trolling on Facebook. Like it was right before the election. It was like a couple months before the election and just trolling all these people who are freaking out about Trump. <laughs> and, and then 
I think I somehow, I think Martyr Maid also somehow found my um, trolling amusing, and then we just kind of beha- became friends. Okay. And okay. then and then he started to recommend me all these books I never heard heard about, and I started to read those as well, and that kind of continued for a while. And okay, yeah. interesting. Interesting. Yeah, so basically, I got on Twitter because I wanted to like message him more, and like he's very inconsistent with his Facebook messaging. Sometimes he would just like not reply for a couple of weeks, and then he'll send you this like long ass essay. <laughs> but then I know that's like at the same time he's just like always on Twitter. Okay, and is that podcast still going? Uh, um, Martyr Made podcast, yeah. Yeah, I thought someone someone in the chat seems to think that they stopped it, um, or he might be referring to something else. I'm not sure. Um, the other one, the Clown of the West, did stop, but um, it seems like Ebert is starting his own thing again, and um, Martyr Maid is still going to continue with Martyr Maid. Interesting, interesting. Okay, and so it, someone earlier in the chat wanted to know: Is there a secret to how do you, how do you get a job through shit posting? <laughs> What's the magic? Um, I, I think you just have to be brutally honest with yourself. Like you can't just be kind of fronting like you're some hot shit or whatever. You just, you just do whatever. And, and if they find you interesting, then it works out, I guess. And you just get a job offer, move yeah. to Seattle. We like your shit posting. Please move to Seattle. You have a job yeah, for it. Interesting. So, um, cool. So what do you think? It, what what is kind of one of the overarching insights of your model or your perspective? Because I think from what I've gathered, I kind of went through a lot of your stuff, and it seems like you do have a, this kind of uh, big idea organized around around mimetic value. Like you you pitch your your body of ideas as related to a, a theory of value, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe yeah. we could go into that a little bit more more deeply. Could you tell us kind of what's the big idea there about the theory of value? Um. So, so for, first, I guess I want to avoid having some sort of overarching grand theory, some sort of like grand framework, because okay. I think that's like very uh, restrictive. So, so one of my favorite philosophers, Lev Shostov, I think I've recommended him to you probably a long time ago. I don't know if you've read him. Okay. I think I recall. I, I haven't yeah. read recently. I might've looked into, into yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So, so Shostov was a... So, so he was a Russian existentialist philosopher from like about a hundred years ago. And he was the first one to notice the connection between uh, Nietzsche and Dostoevsky. And he was one of the big influences for, to uh, Camus. And also he has also influenced uh, Deleuze. But he was this, uh, just a crazy Russian guy. And like one of his, uh, I think one of his earliest works he had, it's, it's not his first book, but it's one of the earlier ones. It's called All Things Are Possible. And that's the book that I've probably read, reread the most. And I've mm-hmm. also gifted that book more than any other book. And, and basically, he just contradicts himself every other page with like all <laughs> these shit posts. And like one of them, one of them, he was like mocking Socrates for like, crying to his pupils while he was dying drinking hemlock he's like no the best death is to just like die in a foreign land where nobody's around you so you can just have time to yourself (laughs) yeah yeah he just like 
So it's like a book of shit posting. Yeah, pretty much. So so basically, and that's also what the Zen riddles are like. Like I, I think you also interviewed Storm King a while back, and he recommended this book uh, by the Zen master. I think his name was Joshu, and basically it's the same thing. Like Joshu had one Zen Zen koan, which basically um, some some random Zen monk asked him, it's like, what is enlightenment? And he says, a puddle of piss. And then the monk was like, what do you mean? Can you show me? And then, and then like Joshu zips down his pants. It's like, Yo, are you sure about it? <laughs> I'm writing <laughs> piss on you. Oh yeah. So that's one of the things you and I have in common is um, mm -hmm. uh, we we're both strong admirers of Diogenes of Sinope. Yeah. So that's uh, very, the story you just told is re reminiscent of Diogenes who famously shit all over the stage at the Ispian games. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you're believed, if you are to believe some of the accounts, you know, it's all, it's all secondhand, but that's one of the famous anecdotes. Mm -hmm. Right. So I guess what's the underlying uh, message here? There's a kind oh, of, yeah. so, so basically one, one thing that Shostov said is like metaphysics and logical positivism are the same thing. And if you buy into either one of them too seriously, you're just a coward. You're too fearful of experiencing like anything real. It, right. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when Mike Tyson says everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, it's the same idea. Right. Right. Yeah. That there, there's a kind of almost um, impossible to discuss or debate fundamental uh, primacy of of real of material reality and yeah. and the body and you know the ability to do things has this just kind of unspeakable undebatable priority over all of the kind of language games that we play mm -hmm. something like that yeah like one one thing that shostov said was like if you're into philosophy and metaphysics it just really means that you have this attachment this like fetish for for like discussions and talking you, you have this like this big fetish for like polite conversation or something like that and, and that's you know like like that's something that is one of my criticisms of the uh idw like overall i, I like a lot of what they say but mm -hmm. at the same time it's you know i don't like certain aspects of it it's like well we need to have these polite conversations and that's how we solve every problem and yeah, I mean, you can have some of those. We're having one right now. It's fine, but it's not what's going to solve every single problem. Right. Definitely. I mean, one of my big beefs with the whole like, quote unquote, IDW folks and that, that like kind of culture or that approach is they kind of like style themselves as very kind of like radical critics of the establishment. But it's it's pretty clear that they all more or less want to be like a replacement establishment. Mm -hmm. You know, they all very much operate on very shared kind of standard liberal assumptions about how the role of the intellectual is to, um, you know, basically uh, provide this, this performance of admirable, respectable kind of intellectual leadership, uh, but to more or less kind of like uh, convince the admiring masses and kind of keep them in line more or less. Like it's, it's very much this kind of like liberal uh, 20th century liberal democratic mold. Whereas I've always been more into like, no, the, the role of the real intellectual is to just be like a constant aggressive 
gadfly trying yeah. to uh, pull the rug out from underneath like mm -hmm. all of the reigning lies that are are the basis of pretty much all like currently existing institutionalized culture at any given status quo. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I'm not a big fan of how the IDW kind of traffics and like this image of being this like radical subversive force, but I don't think that's really what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Like one of the things Shostov said was, uh, this is a direct quote, the business of philosophy isn't to reassure, but to upset. Hmm. So that's why, like, I think trolling is just the highest form of philosophy. You just got to, like, poke at people and see how they're... Oh, you broke up for a second. But someone oh, was yeah. saying that, um, and this is kind of uh, relevant to what you, what you just said, which is that someone like Diogenes was kind of like, the early cynics were kind of like the, the first Western uh, version of shitposting, like kind of literally, <laughs> if you yeah. take that anecdote to be true. Mm -hmm. yeah so okay so g let's go back onto the main thread of your your theory of value we start this was kind of a bit of a tangent talking about because you were talking about Shestov and then uh but that was I think only that was only one bullet point on your larger mm -hmm. larger theory is that right so take us from there yeah yeah so basically you don't want to have too rigid of a model but you you want to be prepared for anything and, and like, yeah, we, I guess we could go into the mimetic theory aspect, but uh, I, I don't know. That's, that almost feels like it's too much to unpack. And, and I would have to like, look through all my notes that are kind of like disorganized and everywhere and kind of like sort that through. Sure. Well, I mean, we can, we can give people the really quick and dirty TLDR, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Rene Girard and, and, and Peter Thiel okay. are, are very okay. So, so here, here, here's an interesting point I'll, I'll bring up. So, sure. there's this one book called The Empire of Value by Orlean. I think that's his last name. Yeah. And, and what he basically said is that he basically already kind of did a mimetic theory perspective of economics. And what he basically said is like, um, kind of Adam Smith and Marx, they're both wrong. But they're wrong because they're the same thing. They're they're too focused on the materialism. They're they're not realizing that uh, humans are have mimetic desires. So right. so they're very attached to this uh, like they're they think there's intrinsic value in things, but but there isn't. It's it's just um, it's it's basically this uh, interdividual consensus where where you basically one person desires something, the other person desires it too. So like scarcity, it's not even like a real thing. I mean, it's, it's kind of real, but it's like, it's not the most fundamental step. You only perceive something as scarce when somebody else desires it. Mm -hmm. So it kind of goes back to the 10th uh, commandment. You, you shouldn't uh, covet whatever your neighbor has. Right. Yeah, it's like the productivity of contemporary capitalism has become really quite impressive and sophisticated to the degree that most people in Western countries don't really want for much materially, but in their in their sense of their own worth or their own self value, they compare themselves to others, and that's that's a, a virtually unlimited 
sense of scarcity because yeah. you know status and rank are intrinsically scarce right so someone else it's 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 intrinsically zero sum right if someone else is higher up in the hierarchy someone else has to be a little bit lower down and yeah. so the idea right is that like so many people basically live their entire lives just um a- obsessively trying to maximize this kind of perceived uh the, the, just this their perception of what is socially valuable uh but that image of what's socially valuable is actually only a reflection of what other people think other people think is socially valuable so it's this like uh endless sort of hall of mirrors where there's nothing really ultimately valuable about it uh it's just people's values reflecting on each other and that causes like the masses so to speak to basically be like constantly chasing after these um these like ideals or values that uh, aren't even real and actually makes them it, it, it. That's kind of one of the driving causes, if you will, of, of so much kind of stupid, wasteful herd behavior. That's kind of, that, I mean, that's like in a very cartoonish way, the kinds of things that I've heard Peter Thiel talk about a few different mm-hmm. times. Yeah. And, and like in my own experience, while I was living in Omaha was basically nothing. I had a lot of friends who were working at these really great jobs at like Facebook, Google, or like investment banks. They were jealous of me. They're like, man, you, you mean you can go to work anytime you want and set your own hours and, and just like do anything you want, say anything you want, and just like spend the day just chilling, walking around parks, listening to podcasts. And they, they were jealous of that. But like I was only spending maybe like six to $800 a month. I had complete freedom. I had like probably less than four hours of work work I had to do per week and just like pure freedom. Right. Do you have, are you, are you a social person or are you kind of reclusive? Um, I, I would say like, I really believe in this idea of like, um, what do you call it? The barbell, the barbell investment strategy. So, so like, I, I want to be in both extremes, but I don't really want to be somewhere lukewarm in the middle. Hmm. So, so I'm perfectly fine being by myself for long extended periods of time, like nobody. But at the same time, like, if I want to just like go out and party every day or go out and just like talk to interesting people in depth one-on-one, like I, I can do that, like for extended periods of time too, no problem. Right. Right. So that's really part of my overarching strat uh, philosophy, which is like you should just be able to to adapt to any situation. Just like be open to all the situations, and you want to know that you can you can win and you can provide value in any situation possible. Right. So we have a nice constructive question from uh, my friend Jacob Chamomile TV, who wants to who wants us to discuss the question. Uh, can the culture be made better or are we fucked? And there's no way to, there's no way to fix the culture. What do you think? Q? Man, like I've thought a lot about this, but like every day I probably think something different. Well, what do you think on this day? Um, I, I think, I think maybe that's not even an important question. I think it's more important to live the way that you want to live according to what's actually happening in reality. Just like, okay, let me look at what reality is right now and what's the best thing I can do for myself. And you just take action and do it rather than complain about 
this thing is going wrong, that thing is going wrong. Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy with that view. I actually tend to think that people, when they when their goal is to help society, they tend to fuck things up. <laughs> mm-hmm. But when their goal is to just like look at themselves and look at their situation and just think as honestly and clearly as possible, like what are the difficult but ethically necessary choices in front of me that are good for me and good for the people around me and that are would bring my that that would be true you know in other words like what is immediately true you know like people think about like what is true as a kind of philosophical puzzle like abstract truths but usually it's a matter of like in your own life like you do things on a daily basis that you know you're kind of lying you know it's like you're there there are things we always are constantly doing for some reason we thought it was necessary or we thought we had to do it for whatever reason um but like half of the things we do on a daily basis we're kind of like pretending to be something we're not. And we're kind of uh, maintaining all of these hypocrisies. And it's like, if you just don't, if you just refuse to do those and you just try to do what's most true, you're not trying to like fix the culture or society. You're, you're just trying to um, be true and, and, and make sense of things. Like if you just do that, I find in my experience anyway, um, you can actually see how if that, like if everyone did that, the culture would actually, it could be fixed. Like the culture and the society at large could be much better. Um, But, but, but it's not in part because you have all these people running around doing crazy ass stupid shit because they think they're trying to make the culture better. It's like, just give up that idiotic idea. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's where I I think um, Jocko really got right. And also what David Goggins really got right. So it's, so they're the, I guess there are two Navy SEALs who recently came out with some pretty good books. And, and they're... Hold up. Where should I start? Actually, let me start with Jordan Peterson. He he said, clean your room. I, I think that's a very good thing to do. I, I think that's... And I don't really necessarily do that all the time, but I try to <laughs> remind myself that I should do that. But yeah. like, that really is, I think, the fundamental axiom that builds up to this. But... The thing is, like, sometimes he doesn't practice that himself. In fact, a lot of times on Twitter, he doesn't. He, he started to tweet about some random shit. He doesn't even know what he's talking about, and he gets into that. But but if you just, like, but if you just always remind yourself, like, no, clean your own room. Why do you even care about this topic that you know nothing about? I think things will be a lot better. And I yeah. think, like, Baco and Goggins are a lot better at living this. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think there's I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that's why, you know, Jordan Peterson so popular, like that mm-hmm. message obviously resonates with people. And in some simple sense, it definitely does work. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I, I've sort of had this observation that in our culture, a lot of the people coming out with these interesting ideas that you're citing, everything gets kind of filtered through this like very segmented kind of like cultural market. Do you know what I mean? It's like people, there are lots of people who look at someone like Jordan Peterson and they're just like, uh, that's not for me. That's not my type of person. That's not yeah. my aesthetics. That's not my milieu. That's not my subculture. And certainly someone like Jocko and like these other people, you know, it's like these people kind of appeal to maybe like, you know, uh, people like you and I, like whatever middle age, uh, you know, men, uh, working on entrepreneurial ventures or whatever, this sort of, like, there's a kind of subcultural kind of consistency or whatever that, that, that works there. But, 
Um, a whole variety of other people will look at someone like Jocko Willink or Jordan Peterson and just be like, it, it can't get through. The message just yeah. doesn't get through. You yeah. know what I mean? And I think that's yeah. one of the main, that's one of the really difficult and, and unfortunate features of our culture right now. But I think that's fairly, it's fairly hardwired. It's like for, mm-hmm. for messages to really get through to an audience, it need there, it needs to be aesthetically and sociologically um, packaged in the right way. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I don't have too much to add to that other than to say like in the way I think about these things, and I think it's very similar, but it's, again, it's just a slightly different aesthetic sociological packaging yeah. is that I just think about it in the terms of honesty. Like, like that's the term my mind always goes back to is cause like, it doesn't really matter how you, like you can package this or frame this idea in many different ways, but ultimately like people know when they're being honest with themselves and when they're not, like you feel, you feel it pretty clearly. And it's like, that can, it can look so different for different people. Uh, it can mean, it, it can mean totally different things. Uh, but if like, usually what's best for you and what is also uh, like productive and, and, and a positive contribution to the culture at large. Um, to me, I think the one of the most like g- general ways to basically describe it is, is just trying to like always be increasing your kind of radical honesty, like with yourself and how you conduct your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely agree with that. And now let me try to tie that together with some crazy philosophical ideas. Please do. Yeah, yeah. So, so we can return back to mimetic desire from here. So, so one of the things that Gerard says about mimetic desire is actually it's a metaphysical desire of like it's an ontological desire. It's like who do you actually want to be, and and are you living out like the the way you want to be? And and that's why we have these mimetic models. We look at these models and say, okay, this guy's kind of living out the life I, I kind of want to have. So I'm going to learn a little bit from him. I'm going right. to mimic him. And, or some other person, you, you're going to mimic them. And I actually wrote a, um, a little blog post on this uh, last year called uh, Metaphysics, Desire, and Aesthetics, something like that. And, and like everyone, they're just going to have different aesthetics that appeal to them. And that's almost negotiable that's like a core value that you're born with and different aesthetics are just going to appeal to different people and you, you can't basically convince people with one aesthetic using mimetic models who have a different aesthetic right and, but but like when you're when you're um being truthful to yourself like radical honesty to yourself that basically it kind of really fixes the world in like a rhizomatic way like if you if everyone just practices that it kind of just like builds up from there yeah i think i think i see i think i know exactly what you're saying because like if you try to give someone a model like you try to give them a theory or kind of even just an explanation or advice like how you should fix your life or how you can contribute to the culture any formula you give if it's going to have some aesthetic. It's going to have some kind of like sociological packaging that is going to be attractive to some people. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to map onto their mimetic desire, as you say, but then for the large majority of other people, that particular aesthetic is not going to map onto their mimetic desire. So it's going to fail. Right. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I, you totally understand what I was saying. Like you're, you're bouncing back to me. You're on the same vibe as me. You're on the same wavelength, which is like, honesty is kind of, a, a uniquely flexible way to put it because it's not really imposing a particular aesthetic. It, it, it's like, 
the basis upon which anyone can kind of develop their own aesthetic and do, you know, they can impose the mimetic value that they want, but it's a term, it's a framework that kind of everyone knows and can understand. And we can kind of talk about it equally uh, in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so in Zen, there's a saying, like you turn the light inward. So that's kind of what you're doing with that uh, mm -hmm. radical honesty to yourself. You're, you're not really projecting outward. You're kind of like just turning it to the, to yourself to really examine yourself like what is ra radically honest for yourself and and you actually i feel like uh how do i explain this so tantric buddhism they also have some interesting stuff in there and they really focus on this like personalized solution they know like you know once one solution for one person is not necessarily gonna be effective for someone else like in fact you might want to teach people in opposite ways like Maybe for one person with a certain, okay, what they say is uh, everyone is beginninglessly enlightened, but we all have like all these different configurations of neuroses that we have to deal with in our own way. Mm. But, and the key is to kind of realize you're already beginninglessly enlightened and this layer of uh, neuroses, it's just a filter. And it's, it's also very similar to what Heidegger says about uh, the mood. The mood is kind of like a filter that kind of like, filters how you see the configuration of the world right and, yeah and in and in tantric buddhism you you have your your uh teacher or whatever they call it who who basically serves as your mimetic model but they they're like very self-aware about like what your aesthetic is so they can kind of like change kind of like just personalize a solution for you at least that's like in theory if they do it right. Of course, there's also like all these like weird cults and scandals and shit. Like right. with all the religions. But you did make a good point before about how the the mimetic desire, it is there for a good reason. That mm -hmm. it's it's for it's for following and being attracted to what what you do admire, to being able to yeah. be motivated by visions of, you know, when you see someone doing something good, to be motivated by that and to be strongly pulled by that. And that is ultimately a good thing. So that that that's a useful thing to remember because there is a tendency to see this mimetic desire as uh, purely negative. It's like this is how everyone is so stupid and they're just socially conformists following each other, you know. But it's not, it's not that. So, so in your model, like art, in other words, like good art would basically be the kind of healthy, productive, um, kind of cultivation of mimetic desire in others or something like that. Uh yeah, yeah, it could be, yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting. I think it's interesting with kind of the, the flattening of the, of the media environment, you know, with things like YouTube and, and Twitter, where it's like people, you know, in like the fifties and sixties or whatever, people all had their sights set on kind of like the, the people at the very top of the broadcast media hierarchy. And, and those were kind of like the structuring figures that people oriented themselves to. And now there's just this wild variety of different people that you can basically look up to and get advice from and read the books of and watch the YouTube channels of or whatever. Um, so I feel like what's kind of going on is it's like, if you imagine like every individual, let's say has some kind of like optimal mimetic desire or something, some like some, some vision of a type of person who is just for their constitution and their temperament, their personality type, uh, there's like a particular ideal image of the coolest possible person. 
Um, and that there's a lot of variety, right? There's going to be a lot of variance across individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like back in the fifties or sixties, all those people had to average out their differences in a, in a really kind of brutal way by all kind of looking up to and kind of admiring like a relatively small set of people. And now it's like the, the rise of like all these internet famous people who are like not half as famous as whatever, like Tom Brokaw or something like that in the, in the, in the sixties or whatever, much less famous, but there's thousands of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's basically because they're each kind of like satisfying or optimized. They're, they're meeting that kind of highly idiosyncratic um, mimetic optimal for like a number of different communities or something like that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so I kind of want to go back to what I said earlier, you know, how on Twitter it's, it's not, it's not landing. It, you, you have, you're talking to different institutions at the same time. Mm. So, so this is a very new thing. And really to process this, you kind of have to be at a higher uh, stage of consciousness. Hmm. So, so there's this, this uh, psychologist with this uh, model of uh, cognitive development. So basically, uh, his name is Robert Kagan. And he basically starts off with Piaget's model of uh, psychological development from, you know, the kid learning abstraction and stuff like that. But then he says, it doesn't end when you become an adult. That's only stage three. You then have stage four, which is you got to think in a more systematic way. And then stage five, where you realize the systemic, the systems all kind of work, but they all kind of break down eventually. So that's also why I don't really want to have like this grand unified theory, because we have a grand unified theory. You're stuck at stage four. You're not going to stage five. You're not accounting for these, because uh, it's impossible to just have this logically consistent grand unified theory. You, you kind of see all these exceptions everywhere. And, right. and in uh, stage five, you kind of just like accept the nebulosity. Yeah. So, so. So anyway, what I'm saying with this is like in this, uh, I guess, John David Eber, we call the hypermodern world that we now live in. It's beyond postmodern, it's hypermodern, where we're fragmenting in all these different kind of uh, internet subcultures. And also everything's just increasing in complexity. You have to be at a higher stage of consciousness to even uh, realize what you're doing. So... So, like, based on the mediums of the past, like, maybe, like, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, you're able to have a much more concrete mimetic model. So you're able to see, like, just this one guy on TV, or you can just, like, read the Bible and say, okay, Jesus is it. I'm just going to follow this one mimetic model. It's very, it's very concrete. You just have, like, this one idea of what you ought to be. Right. But now... In, on the internet, you're exposed to all these different people, all these like many celebrities, and, and you just start to think, oh, I want to be like an aspect of this person, but I also want to be a bit of this person. And you, your consciousness kind of just like really fragments into all these different, like thousands of different parts where you take a little bit from one person and take a little bit from the other. Right. But then you're kind of like jack of all trades. You're not really going deep into one thing. So there's a lot of trade-offs in that. Right. So what do you think is the best way to play that? Because there are there's a there are many failure modes there, right? Like one failure mode is if you go too far in one 
game, you can get punished in in the other games, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad. Like sometimes, let's say you're playing multiple games, you can make one like really good move in one game that maybe gets you. It makes you lose like a bunch of other games you're kind of embedded in. But if you win big enough in the one game, you can afford to lose in the other games. And then that can be a, that can be a winning play. But sometimes if you're trying to play multiple games, you can you can kind of do something half-assed in one where you're trying to play one game, but you get punished in the other games and you don't actually win in the in the one game you're playing well enough to make up for the other ones. And then you just kind of are half-assed at all your games. You know, there are many different mul- there are many yeah. failure modes. Like, how do you see the how do you see uh, what is the strategy of op- optimally playing that? Okay, so so I guess I'll bring up two points. So so first is uh like Shostov is very anti-universalist, and also like Camus is also like the world is absurd. You can't just have this one universal solution that applies to everyone. Maybe some people just need to do something different, and and you just there's no such thing as a um, solution and an algorithm that really applies to everyone. But then there's another perspective, which is uh, in Omaha, one of my good friends there, he's a software engineer, and he basically always talks about this thing called a convergent sub-problem, which and his example is money. So, so, he, so what he says is like, if you don't know what you want to do with your life, you can solve a convergent sub-problem first, which is acquire money. And once you have that, you you can kind of use that as a leverage point to do a whole bunch of other different things. True. So True. so money is one thing. And, and I think um, fitness is another thing. And, and I think right now in our modern society where everyone's gone too soft, this and everyone kind of already knows that money is something you would want anyway. It's It's not like a... It's not what I should emphasize, but like fitness and mental toughness, I think these are also traits that like I would actually distinguish physical fitness from mental toughness. Mm. So these are two other parameters that you can kind of optimize as convergent sub problems. Because if you're mentally tough, that actually I would say that might even be like a meta level beyond money. Because if you're mentally tough, you can if you realize that you need money, you'll find some way to earn it. But if you have the money, you can't really go the other direction. Like you can't use money to buy mental toughness and you can buy fitness to a degree like doctors and also trainer or whatever, but it's, you can't really buy that mental toughness. Right. That's interesting. I think, I mean, I, I would totally agree. Those things are definitely valuable and will help you navigate the strange world that we're in. I, Although, you know, one could say there are lots of people who have those traits and who also get sucked into having like pretty sad, resentful, mediocre lives. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I wonder, like, well, I wonder, I wonder if there is, if there's a deeper trick to it all. Um. So, so I think there's multiple, many, many dimensions and parameters and they all they all kind of like feed into each other. You can't really say which ones at the very top. You just kind of have to balance all of them. Sure. But, so another uh, parameter might be like some sort of metacognition, like awareness. Like you just got to be aware of is whatever you're doing at the moment, what you should be doing. Mm. And, and also like, is it bringing you closer to your goals? All right. Just, 
changes. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Something I I think about, and this is, I guess, kind of similar to your what you were saying about mental toughness. It might just be a bit of a spin on that, but I think often what one thing that people really lack that's really screwing them over in the contemporary digital media environment is, uh, well, what I was going to say was people need like disagreeability training or something like that. I don't even know if that's a thing, but all I know is that like so much, like almost 90% of the language that like a normal person uses on a daily basis, like in the, in the workplace or whatever, it's, it's literally just saying sounds to make the people around you happy to get what you need from them or what you want from them or whatever. And it's usually not their fault because it's usually, this is just kind of the nature of like hypocritical bourgeois kind of like institutionalized modern society. Uh, but it, it does lead to a real problem because people don't have practice just saying what they actually think and feel. Um, so I vote, but then, but then it's interesting because there's this kind of contradiction where on, on Twitter and on, on the internet, a lot of people kind of think that the problem there is people go on the internet and they just say what they feel. It's this kind of like constant, uh, reactive vomiting of, of like base feelings, uh, and, and like uncontrolled expressions. And so it's like, I don't know. I don't know how to square that. They both seem to be problems. I think what might be going on is something like, you know, when people go on Twitter and they're like in this highly reactive state where they're like spewing hatred and vile, vile kind of base content at each other. um, That's not like, that's not them like cutting loose and saying what they really think and feel Mm -hmm. there. That's, that's like them. um, They're, they're still kind of like a, uh, obeying a kind of like cultural script that's not theirs, but it's in part, but it's in part because they have no time or space in their life to actually like explore the wide range of, of thoughts and feelings that they might actually personally have if they one allow themselves to have the thoughts and give them, you know, actually allow it to bubble up and two exercise like the, 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 the mental toughness to use your phrase Mm -hmm. of, of putting out stuff that maybe other people won't really like or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess three things. So for, first it's like, you're, you're basically describing the NPC or the bug man or whatever. They're, kind they're of, just following this like algorithm where they're not really thinking for themselves. They're not, they're not even self-aware of their own mental processes. They're just kind of going through this motion because they're trapped in this very rigid metaphysical box. That's like they're being the frog at the bottom of the well. Yeah. And I would just add that like, that's me most of the time too. Like that's most people, most of the time, I'm not like being an elitist about it. It's like, um, it's, it's a natural kind of failure mode. It's common in, in, in everyday life, but yeah, go on. Yeah. And, and then, but at the same time, sometimes I, I, maybe this is like reading too much into it but like you know like if you're used to like the teal like peter teal's way of thinking you might think maybe these people have a hidden message in their tweets like when they're angrily tweeting and you maybe like if you process their tweets like feed it through some sort of like decryption algorithm there will actually be some sort of like crazy message inside because i always wonder that and i always try to see like uh, so I haven't really done this yet, but I'm always wondering, like, what if I can 
just tweet out like some very generic tweet thread like describing my day or something but like if you can like decipher it in the right way like some sort of like cryptographic uh algorithm you'll find like some secret insight inside yeah that's an interesting thought i mean i definitely don't think that individuals are playing any kind of like sophisticated cipher but i i would give you that in as masses like the the overall kind of volume or content of the different signals that are sent out on a daily basis in the in cyberspace like i definitely kind of see like techno capital as playing this like ciphering game and so it's like each of us as individuals are more or less just you know very very small puppets really in the in the larger game that techno capital is playing with us and in that sense there might be underlying pattern in all of the noise that that you could kind of extrapolate in, in a more meaningful way. Right. Uh, I, w- I would give you something like that, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like nobody's doing what I just described yet. But at the same time, I think, why not? Why don't we tweak like this? Oh, it will make things more entertaining, right? If you like, especially if you have like a close group of people who, who kind of knows what's going on, you can just like have this very generic boring conversation with each other but actually you're passing like secret important messages among each other but like everyone else is just clueless or or like you're not even having generic conversation you're having one that's like intentionally you're just trying to make people upset and everyone's like oh yeah you guys are just being assholes or idiots but actually you're having a very sophisticated like intellectual exchange underneath that would be cool yeah you could probably come up with a thing where like you just agree on a few key phrases that are uh they they are meaningless or uh they have no obvious meaning on the surface but they're basically kind of kind of like uh you know in in inside jokes except it's like the inside joke but you use it a little bit with greater analytical sophistication so it's like instead of inside jokes where you just say something no one else understands and you have a laugh about it that actually has it has a certain little bit of meaning and you can kind of piece them together and actually use them to to communicate messages like that would be yeah 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 and um, yeah i mean you could even, you could even make some kind of app where like on the surface your um like you on the surface it just looks like nonsense but people who have like the key or something like that they mm-hmm. they see in their browser like the translated version or something yeah. i don't know yeah that would be one way to terrify Twitter. Like if all of the like weightlifting, like uh, philosophy bros started like speaking in tongues, um, <laughs> people would get freaked out like crazy. I mean, there's, there's a couple of times I test this, this out. Like I would like tweet something in, in Caesar cipher, say like, if you, if you can read this, tweet back at me a prime number. And there was a couple of people who got it. Really? Yeah. And yeah, so like, let's go back to like our original topic about like all these people freaking out, panicking, can't communicate, whatever. Right. So, so I was listening to a podcast today by this guy Faraz Zahabi. He's the he's a he's the trainer of GSP, the uh, MMA champion. Sure. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know a thing or two. I actually just got my blue belt. Thank you yeah, very much. Nice. Nice. <laughs> so what he sure. said is like, everyone in the world should be at least a blue belt. And what he said is like. And, and the reason why he says this is like everyone should have the choice to be choose. 
everyone should basically have the choice to be either courageous or patient in a situation when someone's frustrating you. Because if you don't, if you're not at least a blue belt, you're just, and if you, and if you ignore someone, you're not being patient. You're just being a coward. Hmm. So there's a difference. You, and it's kind of like the same thing as uh, Jordan Peterson's interpretation of uh, that one Bible verse. The, so it's like, what was it? The meek shall inherit the earth. Well, mm -hmm. Jordan Peterson's uh, interpretation was that uh, these who, who know how to wield swords but choose to keep them sheep shall inherit the earth. So basically it means you need to be very physically capable and also mentally tough. Uh, but you kind of choose to be patient when, when you feel like you need to be. Right, sure. Yeah, there's a line in uh, Nietzsche's Zarathustra, too, about... The, I, 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 I'm very bad with remembering lines, but uh, yeah, something about the animal who, uh, you know, acts very sweet, but really just has no claws. Mm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm with that message, definitely. It is interesting, like the relationship between martial arts and, and thinking and speaking. Like, I think there's an undeniable relationship in the sense that, I mean, I, I don't know if there's research on this. I don't know if this would be, if there were, if you'd find support for this in the, in the data, but I would put some money that you would, that basically the more fit you are physically and the more trained you are uh, martially, the more liberty you take saying what you think in difficult situations. I'd bet there's a correlation. I mean, I know there's a correlation. I don't know if you know this, but uh, basically uh, upper body strength in men is negatively correlated with egalitarianism. Okay. I guess I'm very anti-egalitarian. <laughs> is it true? Are you? Um, it's hard to say. Like, how do you define egalitarian, right? Well, just like think about a question like um, – you know, would you support generous social spending to help poor people? Like your answer to that question is going to become a little less generous slightly to some degree. Uh, the more, so the more stronger so, you are. In, in so, so I think there's uh there's more layers to this. Uh, have you ever read any Jack Donovan? I haven't. I think someone has mentioned him to me. I looked into it a little bit, but I haven't read much. Is that the werewolf guy? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But basically it, it's, it's not a matter of anti-galitarian because I, I think he's actually, um, in for, so basically he would separate out the in-group and the out-group. So he would actually be very egalitarian to the in-group because we're, you know, we're right. all bros. We're, we're all equals. Right. And, and if you're the leader, you're the first among equals and you're kind of like, and it's not necessarily like a, permanent position and and basically uh sebastian younger talks about this in tribe as well but in other societal structures like if you if you're an emperor then the emperor is like a god and so that's like a distinct category and the god is like above everyone else but the god is also the uh human sacrifice so we kind of goes go back to mimetic theory right right so, so like the god is actually more fragile. While, while like if you're the first among equals, you're you're more anti-fragile because you're just you understand that's your role that you need to play in that moment. But like you guys are still equals. 
Right. So you don't think that upper body strength will make you less egalitarian in general, but it'll maybe it would make you more, it would make your egalitarianism more conditional on the in-group. So you'll be more generous with your group, but maybe a little bit more brutal with the out-group. Um, yeah, possibly. Possibly. Right, right. Because it also kind of depends on how you like internally define what is your in-group and out-group. And I think that's just like, that's another whole can of worm that's like much more complex. Right. One thing I feel like I've observed in my life, because uh, I've been training pretty consistently now for like two years in jujitsu. And uh, one thing I've noticed is my patience for like basically meaningless, like bullshit debates has has decreased a lot. Because one of the things you get, I think, from training in martial arts is like who's who's better and who's worse is like very, very clear. You know, there's like an undeniable just material reality to domination and, 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 uh, you know, who, who's the winner and who's the loser. It's just extremely clear. And it's yeah. usually, it's usually, um, just a, a very direct function of, of skill level and mm -hmm. training time and experience or whatever. And, but in any particular, you know, moment, of sparring or whatever like who's better and who's worse is like uh usually clear and if it's not clear between people in a particular moment it's just it's unambiguously physically decided mm -hmm. and i think from from the more you do that kind of thing the the more you find yourself in when you're in like a meaningless debate that's going in circles you're just like that i have no time for this i have no patience for this yeah. because i because i because i know what it's like because you you can contrast it to like clear and efficient adjudication like that's kind of what like martial arts gives you is like clear and efficient adjudication of of right and wrong of of you know dominant dominated and dominant mm -hmm. and uh yeah so i wonder if there's a i wonder if there's a kind of more robust psychological um, correlate in there somewhere so Maybe. so i think yeah like when you train the martial art it's, it's almost like a form of meditation it kind of gives you more clear-mindedness in some sense and possibly more metacognition where you're able to kind of like realize is this the right moment for me to do nuanced thinking like system two thinking or is this the right time to do system one thinking because a lot right. of people okay. who are just like purely academics they're stuck in system two thinking they, they feel like that's 100 percent superior but that's not always always the case right that's true so, so they get stuck in the nuances but sometimes it's like the solution is very obvious it's like why are you trying to decide on this petty detail when it doesn't matter like the whole whole thing just doesn't work just like discard that right yeah and you also have it that's right that's right and you also you get a better sense of how it's like ultimately reality sorts itself out mm -hmm. like that's one that's one thing i think i've benefited tremendously because i I've, I've definitely been guilty of what you just described like basically living in system two all the time mm -hmm. overthinking everything like i've always overthought everything in my life to a detriment um but yeah, like doing martial arts pretty seriously for an extended period of time, you kind of realize like how much, like, yeah, thinking helps, studying helps, of course, being conscientious helps these things. But um, like in any particular moment, like sparring with someone or competing in martial arts, like no amount of thinking really, really hard analytically about that particular mm -hmm. moment, that particular conflict or situation is going to help you or solve you or solve it or make make you better or, or help you win it. 
Um, and in fact, it's quite a detriment actually, if you're like, if you're stuck in like a hyper analytical mode when you actually have to perform. And so it's like, you realize that it's like when you go to a competition in martial arts or something like that, it's like the, like win, winning and losing is going to be decided by a, a, a very objective function basically. And how mm-hmm. much, how much brain glucose you burn in, uh, you know, in like the five minutes before the match has nothing to do with it. Like reality, the reality of, of what you each put into it in the several months beforehand and, and, and the years beforehand is basically going to determine it. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's really useful to have something in your life where reality sorts itself out in a way that's palpably um, beyond like analytical uh, tractability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is the problem I was like, I was dealing with a lot in my early childhood and like i got into like the best university possible or whatever and then just like i i, I didn't enjoy the environment because i saw like if i graduated what am i gonna be i'm just gonna be some programmer at facebook or google or i'm gonna go maybe do some algorithmic trading and that's that's my life and i feel like no that's a terrible lifestyle so i kind of took it took it to the extremes and just like just dropped out and did lifting every day. And, but then I kind of went to like the other extreme where it said, okay, now I'm the strongest, baddest motherfucker out there. I'm just going to go out like, and just like, you know, go out, party, drink, whatever, every day. <laughs> and then just like be the strongest guy in the gym in the morning was a hangover. But then I felt like, no, that's not really the, the life I want either. So I went back to, uh, reading a lot so i stopped lifting and started to read a lot all these different philosophies to really try to figure out what's going on try to find some sort of balance so i got this intuition that there's a balanced way but you you don't really know how to do it on until you actually run into the problems in your personal life and right now i feel like i'm at a pretty good balanced spot and i'm trying to get there more and more and, and really, it's it's not like a static balance where you're always at the same middle level. Like, that's not what the Buddha means by the middle way. It, it, it means that you can kind of like fluctuate to the extremes one side or the other really quickly and just like kind of go back to centering yourself in your own mind. So you're able to be, you have the capacity to handle stressors in every single direction possible. Right, right. Yeah, that's nice. Do you want to maybe start to move towards closing by talking about your book a little bit you should tell us about because i think you're writing a book is that right yeah maybe you tell us where are you at with it uh how far along are you um so so right now i'm not too focused on writing the book at the current moment because i'm more okay. focused on trying to you know do this startup that i can't really say too much more about right now sure but actually they're kind of related because the the nature of the startup is like how do we get the value out of ideas, right? Okay. And, and so that's kind of like the um, philosophical question, kind of driving the nature of the startup. And what I kind of want to do is like I don't just want to write some bullshit theoretical book about and, and just like pull up a whole a whole bunch of studies. I want I want my actions to align with my philosophy. So I want basically what happens with a startup to kind of like be consistent, be like an actualization of what's going to go inside the book. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So basically with the book, I'm not really doing any active writing as of now, but I've, 
probably hundreds of pages of notes and random drafts written up. And, okay. Yeah. Interesting. So you're kind of trying you're trying to take your ideas and test them out a little bit first. Right. 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 Exactly. So so I'm trying to have something that's no bullshit and just like very pragmatic. Yep also able to go as deep into the abstractions and the theories as possible as well. So kind of like that, going back to like the barbell investment strategy, so kind of try to have both sides of it. Right. Nice. Dude, I mean, maybe, maybe what I need to, I, I need to draft a, a book proposal, like in the form of like, kind of like a business theory, <laughs> put it on the internet and see if, um, and see if some uh, startup founder wants to recruit me as a consultant or a programmer or something like that. I might have to, I might have to try out your your path. Yeah, I mean, it can't hurt to just give it a shot. Yeah. Um so what what is your plan for uh for the book? It's just open timeline, no 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 particular deadlines you're setting for yourself or anything, just when it, when it, when you get to it, you'll get to it. Um there there should be a deadline eventually. Just uh I I don't have one in mind yet. But there definitely will be one, like as soon as we clear up some other things. Maybe like I want to have something more polished, let's say in like a year. Nice. Nice. Good. Well, you heard it you heard heard it here first, folks. Maybe when you're done with the book, you can come back on the my YouTube channel and we can talk about that too. Yeah. Um Cool. Well, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of your Twitter account. And this was fun to get to know you a little bit. Oh, someone asked, by the way, are you from? I think I saw from your blog. Are you are you Chinese? Are you? Oh uh, yeah, that's right. So were you born and raised there? Uh, I was born there, but I've been like American citizen since pretty much first year of college. Okay, right on. Yeah, someone in the chat was just curious. Are there any other kind of? Um, let's see. Maybe what should I? How should I put this? Are there are there any big ideas that you think? Uh, people who watch my channel would be interested to know that they don't already know that you'd be keen to uh, share before parting with us. Uh, I, I think I mostly shared what I wanted to share today, but I'll probably recommend to try to get Daryl of Martyr made on, on the show and also like our other mutual friend, uh, Michael Caymans. Okay. Um, I don't know if I've, I don't know if they ring a bell to me, but, yeah. uh, you said we have, we're mutual friends. Michael, Michael, who is it? Uh, so, so, so my, my mutual friend was Daryl of Martyr Maid, uh, Michael Caymans. Like we had a pretty interesting conversation on the future fossils podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. I've seen him around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we had a pretty interesting discussion there, and yeah, like I think Caymans stole the show on that one. So he's definitely a very interesting guy because, like, him and Ebert—they're the main ones developing. Oh, sorry, you broke up a, a minute. Um, yeah. They're developing what? What was that? Did you say? Uh, the the hypermodernity of philosophy. Okay. Do you, could you tell us real quick what that is? Um, so, so Ebert, I think Ebert already kind of went into a little bit when he had that discussion with you, like hypermodernity is like the time frame that happened basically after nine 11 or so, or actually even a little bit before then it's like this changing the culture 
Okay, right, right. Postmodernism. Right. Yeah, I never remember anything. (laughs) I I don't remember it unless I'm like, I need to read it multiple times and I need to write about it. And then I I develop memories. But other than that, stuff goes goes in one ear out the other sometimes. It's a shame. Um, Okay, yeah. Well, thanks for those tips. I'll look into them for sure. Um, I mean, I'm always like open to meeting new people and uh, I'm sure I've seen them around. Their their ideas uh, don't or their names don't uh, immediately jump out of my mind, but I'm sure I've seen them around and uh, thanks. For, I'm always open to tips. So yeah, thanks for that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. uh, this has been fun. Yeah. Uh, there's no need to uh, draw it out any longer than, than we need to. I think this, I think we covered a lot of ground and mm-hmm. I have a better sense of uh, your ideas and, and what you're all about and stuff. And uh, also we can easily just do this again anytime if you want. Yeah. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Let's talk again sometime. Yeah, thanks, Q. Uh, good, good to know you, and this was fun. Um, I'll be in touch with you, man. Thanks again. Yeah. All right. All right, cool. Take it easy. Yep, me too. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe, and it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all, and I will see you around the internet.